0: I'd like to turn once again to the Gospel of John, chapter 19, and reading at verse 16, at verse 15, in fact. John chapter 19, at verse 15. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he, Pilate, delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and led him away. It's a remarkable fact that the Gospels major and focus on the cross of Christ more than in any other part of Jesus' life. We have thought that in trying to propagate Christianity, in trying to to bring a good reputation upon Christianity The gospel writers would have declared many of Jesus' miracles, many of the good things that he had done. He spent his whole life going about doing good and speaking good to the people and relieving them from the oppression of the scribes and Pharisees and the chief priests. But no, they focus on the cross of Christ. And in doing this, they highlight the reason. For the Lord Jesus Christ coming into this world, He came not to set us an example, not to show us how we should live, although these are byproducts of His life here on earth. He came to taste death for every man. They highlight the reason for the Lord's coming into this world was to die the just for the unjust to bring us to God it's not his birth which the world takes so much so much of its time and energy in giving itself over to in, in times of the Christmas celebrations, it's not his birth that the gospel writers major on it's on his death and his resurrection that the emphasis might be on the one who came to this world to die and to rise again, to die, to never die again, to rise again, that he might be a prince and a saviour forevermore. The Gospels remind us in all of the force of nature that the road that he walked But the end of that road was the Lord's death. We're reminded of what he did. We're reminded of where he went, of how he was a man of prayer, of how he was accused of being a friend of publicans and sinners. But most emphatically, they speak of the Lord's trial and death at the hands of the Jews, and the Gentiles. One thing we must never forget is that the Lord's death was primarily a spiritual suffering. The spitting, the scourging, the blindfolding, the kiss of denial, all these were superficial. But even as we look at this aspect of, of the superficialness of this outward suffering, you can think of one aspect of it which, is, which seems so peculiar in the experience of the Lord. Uh, they were spitting at the Lord. Even in, in today's world we, we know how much spitting has become turned into a hate crime. And yet here they were, the Lord of glory, and they were spitting at him and name calling him and trying to destroy him in his, in his very being. But all this were really things that yes, he, that they affected him. Yes, they, they, they brought suffering to him on, on a level whereby his, his emotions were affected. But the real sufferings were at the hand of his father, the heavenly father, the spiritual sufferings, where he suffered on the cross and where he had to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? None Or even all of them couldn't compete with what the Lord suffered at the hands of his heavenly Father. For it was the Lord who put him to grief. It was the Lord who made his soul an offering for sin. It was the Lord who made him a curse. It was the Lord who offered him up for us all. The Lord had just passed through a night of continuous trial he was no doubt exhausted by what he had already suffered or experienced he'd been in the upper room with his disciples initiating the Lord's Supper he'd left that room and made his way down through the valley of Jehoshaphat to the garden of Gethsemane on the way there, he tells them the parable of the vine and the vine dresser. And all that that means, as far as they were concerned, that they were to bear fruit, they were to be his witnesses. And even to the end of his life, he was exhorting them and teaching them that their life had to have meaning. As it is for us, we're not here as Christians on some sentimental journey to feel warmed by the gospel and simply to enjoy fellowship. We are to be his witnesses. We are to bear testimony. We are to be as those who speak of the Lord and all that he has done for our souls. And so as the Lord had just passed through this night of trial and suffering, he goes to Gethsemane and there again, once again, he falls on his face and he prays to his his heavenly father that if this might pass from him let it be so nevertheless not my will but thine he realizes that only as he drinks the cup that he is going to be able to fulfill his father's will only as he engages with the work that he's been given to do that, that the purposes of his heavenly father will be carried out And so amidst all the the sweat and the tears and his arrest and the mockery of the trial and the ridicule, there's always this purpose always in mind. Nevertheless, unless I drink this cup, it will not pass from me. He realizes there more and more in his own person that he must fulfill the work that his father has given him to do, if he's going to gain the salvation of mankind let me find here Pilate's final abdication of the authority uh, that has been given to them he delivered Jesus up to do their will remember Pilate had told them, go and you deal with him, you punish him as you want uh, but they say, no, but we have a law. A law whereby if he should be crucified because he made himself to be the Son of God. And he has to die. He has to die the Roman death. And so is fulfilled the prophecy that our Lord made to his disciples, that he would be handed over to Gentiles and that he would be crucified. And so here's that prophecy being put into effect by Pilate himself. He delivers Jesus to their will. He, he was delivered up. The Lord already knew that he was to go to Jerusalem. The Lord already knew that he would be delivered into the hands of the chief priests and the elders and that he would be condemned to death. How did it begin? Well, it began by Judas Iscariot taking the first step. From there he's taken to Caiaphas' judgment hall, the, the house of the high priest. And there, the ultimate sanction is given to the Jews in Caiaphas' own words. It is expedient that one man should die for the nation and that the whole nation perish not. It was Pilate's part to deliver the Lord into their hands. It was the Jews' part to receive him. The Lord tells us or John tells us that the Lord came to his own and they did not receive him. There's a a play on the words here in, in in the narrative of John's Gospel. We have it there in the beginning in the passage I read. He came to his own but his own did not receive him. And here... Uh, we have this this other wordplay that Pilate delivered Jesus to them and they did receive him. They wouldn't receive him as Lord and Saviour, but they would receive him that he might be put to death. They wouldn't receive him that he might have life, but they did receive him that they might put him to death. Not that they would carry it out themselves. No, they weren't going to do that. They weren't going to to bloody their own hands. They were too cowardly for that. The Romans would have to do it. But the ultimate burden was going to be theirs. In their own cry, his blood be upon us and upon our children they had laid hands on him in the garden taken him to Annas and to Caiaphas arranged a trial they mocked him and when morning came we told at the sixth hour first thing in the morning they took him to Pilate's Praetorium there they stripped him there they scourged him there they, they clothed him With a robe and put a reed in his hand and cried, Hail, King of the Jews! Nothing short of death was going to satisfy them. And now the bonds were taken from his hand for a short time while he was given the ability to carry the cross. But in his weakened state, that was not possible. He spent a whole day before that, the whole mental energy and the, the whole night in the physical energy of having to endure the trial and the flogging. And then they try and put a cross on him, for him to carry it. And in trying to do that, his body buckles under the weight of it, and he falls to his knees. but nothing short of this ignominy and this mockery was going to satisfy the crowd who were there and so they scourged they robed him and they gave him the cross to carry for they didn't believe that he was the son of God. Scriptures say they would not have done these things if they had known that he was a son of God. Well, the Lord gave ample evidence, ample proof of who he was and the things that he did could only have done by someone who was God himself. Although he identified as the God who had spoken to Moses in the burning bush, as the God who who spoke to Abraham who saw his day and rejoiced in it he claimed that he and the father were one the high priest had even made him confess in the hearing of all that he was the son of God it's not as though they were ignorant of these claims it's not as though he hadn't made them in their own hearing It was the the main reason that they had come to accuse him before Pilate and to have him crucified. And it was something they could not forget. It was something that was in the forefront of their mind. Even on the cross, he made himself the the son of God. They, They threw this challenge at him. Well, let God deliver him if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. They had refused, as I said earlier on, to see that what he had done could only have been done by God himself. In the walking on water, in the healing of the blind, the deaf and the lame, in the raising of the dead. All ample evidence that here was somebody who was was more than man. Here was somebody who was engaging in a ministry of mercy and good to the people who would not receive him. And so they led him away. Now it, was, it was common practice in that era for the man to carry his own punishment, his form of death, to carry it himself. And so they laid the cross on Jesus, but the Lord, as I said, was so exhausted he sank under his weight. And so they found another Simon of Cyrene to carry the cross after him. And so they led him away to die for the sins of the world. Led like a a lamb to the slaughter. But in spite of the, the mass of hostility that surrounded him and was directed at him, some lamented. Now, sometimes we think that this might have been the Lord's followers, or it might have been the people, those who had been following him while he was giving his 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 testimony. The women of Galilee, but it seems much more likely that these were the women of Jerusalem, the daughters and wives of the of those who had been crying out, crucify him, crucify him. It was those who had lamented him. And he turns to them and says, weep not for me, but weep for yourselves. And weep for Jerusalem. Because he knew exactly what was going to happen to Jerusalem. But in AD 70, there would be not one stone left upon another. He told the disciples that already on one occasion when they boasted of all the stones and the buildings. And Jesus said, they shall not continue, but they shall be removed one from the other. And he's saying the same thing here to these women. Weep not for me, but weep for yourselves and for this city, for it shall be destroyed and you will be destroyed and you will be cast out from your inheritance. And your house will be left unto you desolate. And so they led him away outside the city gate to a place called Golgotha. See, the law of Moses didn't permit men to be put to death inside Jerusalem. Uh, they had to be removed outside the gate. If you remember what happened in the death of Stephen, the crowd who were accusing Stephen dragged him outside the city wall and as there they stoned him and put him to death and so also here in the experience of the Lord they took him outside the city gate to put him to death it was the same for the Lord they led him out to a place called Golgotha the place of the skull a hill not far away from Jerusalem where the weather has gouged out the rock to make it look like two eyes in a mouth just outside the city wall not far from the Damascus Gate going north towards Samaria. And so it's there they took him. It's there they crucified him. And all this was in keeping with the ancient ceremony which took place on the Day of Atonement when the animal that was offered up was taken outside the gate. The letter to the Hebrews tells us, Wherefore Jesus also that he might sanctify the people who with his own blood suffered without the gate. So scripture again and again is being fulfilled in all that Jesus accomplishes, in all that he has done for us and for our salvation. This was the way the Lord had to walk. If his dying was to atone for the sins of the world, this is what he had to do. If he was to finish the work that his father had given him to do if he could go to his father with the high priestly prayer, which said, I have finished the work that you have given me to do, therefore glorify thou me. He was already glorified as the second person of the Trinity, but having engaged to finish the work, he had to finish it to continue in his enhanced and elevated purpose on the right hand of the Most High God. He had to finish the work not only for us but also for himself that he might receive a name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee might bow and every tongue might confess. None of the twelve had to die the same sort of death as Jesus. None of the twelve were led to die with the Lord their time had, had not yet come and the Lord said to his captors if you seek me let these go their way and in the garden they, they came to, to take them all and the Lord said if you seek me let these go their way and, and so it is for us and our salvation if you seek me let these go their way and so the Lord the Heavenly Father accepts Jesus and what he does and what he accomplished for you and for me. He dies so that we might never have to die the death. He dies. He comes to be separate from God so that you and I might never have to be separate from God. If you seek me, let these and go their way. But no servant is above his master. And the Lord made it clear that they were to follow in his steps. If any man will follow me, let him take up his cross and follow me. Such an image was all too familiar with the disciples of that era. They had seen the persecutions of the Galileans and the way the Romans dealt dealt with all those who rose up against them. And the hills around Jerusalem were were studded with with crosses and they knew exactly what it meant when the Lord said to them, take up your cross and follow me. He, He was saying to them, I want you to give everything, even your life, for me and the gospel's sake. And to become my witnesses. And so the call to take up the cross was a vivid picture of the ultimate nature of the discipleship to which you and I are called to. But the Lord was not asking them to do something which was he was not willing to do himself. He would go forth outside the camp bearing their approach. All this may seem very remote from us here in the 21st century but it should speak to us of the love and the passion and the mercy that there is in Christ Jesus. And it's not only these wonderful facts concerning the Lord Jesus Christ that should captivate us and draws to him in the words of of Peter there are some great and precious promises given to us by them we might be made partakers of the divine nature that all things work together for good to those who love God that nothing shall separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. All these are wonderful and great and precious promises to all those who are in Christ and who love Christ and whose lives are hid with Christ in God. Another of the precious promises uh, that are given to us is that when we die we shall be with Christ, which is far better that death is not the end, but that beyond death there is the promise of eternal life in Christ Jesus. Death is like a a going home, a going home to be reunited with those who have gone before us. And they're the blessing God commands a life that shall never end. It is said, goodness and mercy, all our lives have surely followed us. And in God's house, forevermore, our dwelling place shall be. Looking back, and the life that the Lord has given us and goodness' mercy has followed us in this life. And the promise of the life to come, a dwelling place shall be with him. Then also, uh, because of what Christ has accomplished for us, one day our dead bodies shall rise and we shall be forever with the Lord our dead body shall rise death shall not have the final word. death is swallowed up in victory then it shall be said as Paul says in Corinthians death is swallowed up in victory death where is your sting O grave where is your victory The Lord's resurrection is the reason that we hope for a resurrection. And that the command of Christ and the graves shall give up their dead. So when we sorrow, as we do over those who have gone before us, it's not as those who have no hope. We've just been remembering the dead the two world wars, and other wars too in Korea, Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan and others. Fifty-four, thousand whose bodies were never found remember that the men in gate, those lost to sea, bodies torn apart by bombs or birds in ashes. Remember Paul's words to us in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first then we who are alive and who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. And so, molecule by molecule, Atom, and by atom, the God who created our individual DNAs when he created us, will recreate us. And we will be able to say words like Job did. With these eyes, I shall see the Lord. And with these hands, I shall handle him and so he will recreate us again even out of the ashes and the dust of death and as someone has said what an example of the flash of the will that can and so we should ever be with the Lord but until then there are these promises of God's faithfulness and grace towards us in this life in Christ Jesus. An assurance of his love, filling us with the knowledge that he loves us with an everlasting love, with a peace of conscience in this world which seeks to disturb our conscience and seeks to, to bring us down and, and the devil himself trying to convince us that we are not the Lord's people at all. But the Lord will give us that peace and the courage to withstand that by increasing our faith. And day by day, he brings us to know more of the faith that he has given us to stand more and more in that faith and not to reject it or not to turn our backs on it. A joy which will fill us in the knowledge that here we have the prospect of a life that shall never end. And the guarantee that we shall persevere to the end. Not because we will, we will persevere in our own strength. But that the Lord himself will persevere with us. He will bring us to the end he will perfect that work which he began in us and so that one day he will be able to present us faultless in his own presence with exceeding joy may these thoughts and, and these encouragements and these promises encourage us as we go along life's journey to know that we are here not alone but truly that our lives ahead with Christ in God may the Lord then bless these thoughts to us let us then conclude our worship singing to God's praise in Psalm 145 sing Psalms version on page 189 the tune eventide I will exhort you O my God and King forever I will praise your holy name I will extol your name forevermore, and day after day your praise I will proclaim. To the end of the verse, Mark seven, four stanzas to God's praise. grace, mercy, and peace. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, rest on you and abide in you now and always.